got a lot of work to do today in Judges chapters 10 and 11. If you open up your Bible, we're going to go ahead and dive in. And, and this book, I mean, it's been grim, right? It's been uh, this cycle of chaos. And you know what? It's not even a cycle of chaos, but it's, it's, a, it's a downward spiral. Because in the book of Judges, we see this crescendo of evil happening. In the beginning, things kind of start out, and they're a little unsure. They're not really honoring the Lord. And we are getting to bigger, higher heights here because Israel is full-blown in rebellion towards their God. Last week, we talked about Gideon and his calling and how uh, even in Gideon's cowardice, God was at work in him. We talked about how God cares, he, he cultivates, he clothes, and, and he completes the mission of those that he has called. But if we're seeing one thing for sure throughout this book, it's that broken people, which all of us are, marred by the fall of man since Genesis 3, broken people break things, right? Like broken people break things. But, but here's the thing, God redeems broken things. God in his, in his faithfulness and in his strength, he has been at work despite the mess that Israel has been creating. Despite the idolatry, despite the disobedience, despite the distrust, and despite the cowardice, God's steady hand is the thread that we can see throughout this book as well. And my friends, today as we dive deeper into this book, we're going to see that the story gets grimier Story gets grimier with this judge named Jephthah, all right? And, and Jephthah, um, although the Lord uses him, he makes some bad decisions, and there's lots to unpack. And let me just say, this is, this is a hard story here. So our game plan is this, and it's also not very well known. Our game plan is this. We are going to fill the plate up and then eat off of it. You get what I'm saying? We're going to go through this story, we are going to unpack this story, and then we are going to go back and work through the story again and take what we can find from it, okay? So this is going to be a little bit of a crazy ride, but hold on, church, all right? Because we want to land at the end seeing God's faithfulness in the midst of this chaos. But before we go ahead and read, um, let's pray and ask God to, to bless this time. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to see your hope, Lord, in, in the chaos. Lord, please stir our hearts with affection for you. Help us to see who you are in this word. Lord, these are, these are your words, Lord. Help us to see it. Help us to see what you have for us this morning, God. Even those of us here who are far from you, who don't know you, God, draw us in to your word, Lord. Help us to see you in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read a few portions and also just explain some of it. So, so follow along with me. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to start in chapter 10 in verse 6 and go all the way to 18. 
For the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. For the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So we see here so far in chapter 10, we see them enter into the same cycle, Israel, that they have entered into time and time again. They are serving the Baals, they're serving the Asherah, but not only them. Now we see an even longer list of all of the gods of the surrounding nations from the land of of Canaan, Moab, Ammon in the east, the Philistines in the southwest, Syria and Sidon in the north. And they are serving these gods. They are being oppressed by the Ammonites in return. And they're realizing there is so much necessity for a leader. They need someone to come and save them. And they cry out to God in verse 10. And God responds and he says, no, I've had enough. He sees that they keep sinning and they keep turning. And and if you have some questions in your mind about that, we're going to unpack them when it's time. But here's the thing. They cry out to God again in in verse 15. They turn and they repent of their sin and God shows them mercy. But here's the thing. They're already far enough in to this idolatry to where they're being oppressed by the people of Ammon. That the, Ammon have, uh, the Ammonites have called them to arms and Israel's on the brink of war. So they see how much they need a leader. They need someone to fight for them. So we move on to chapter 11, okay? Let me, let me lay out the beginning part of chapter 11 and then we'll read the end part of it. We, we meet a guy named Jephthah. Everybody say Jephthah. If you ever have a son, there's a good option for you, Jephthah, okay? But he is a Gileadite, all right? And he is called a mighty warrior. Who else was called a mighty warrior recently? Gideon. Very good. I was nervous. I was nervous that no one, but, but very good, all right? So anyway, um, this guy named Jephthah, his dad is Gilead, and his dad had a relationship with a prostitute, his mom, and, and those two came together, and their only son was Jephthah. 
So his dad, who also had wives, had other children. But since, since uh, Jephthah was the half-brother, they said, you know what? Away with you. We don't want to split our inheritance with you, so go off and do your thing. So they sent him to this vision land of Tob. And Tob is this land filled with, with criminals, right? It's filled with, with crime lords, with swindlers, with, with those like scavengers. We could even equate them to pirates, right? And Jephthah lives in this place and becomes one of these people. Right around that time, Ammon begins to, begins to put pressure, more and more pressure on the people of Israel. And they see that they need a savior. And they don't know where to look. So they actually end up calling Jephthah back into the picture. And this is the first time we see in the book of Judges that, that Israel is the one who calls the one who's going to save them. God didn't raise Jephthah up like we see all the other judges. God raised them up. We see Israel call Jephthah and say, Jephthah, why don't you come help us out? Jephthah is hesitant at first. He's a little frustrated. He's used to getting what he wants, and the one place he never got what he wanted was staying at home and being with his family and his people. So he, you know what, he's a little hesitant at first, but then he's promised kingship if he leads the people of Israel into victory, and he accepts. So in the first part of of Jephthah's leadership, he begins to do what he knows how to do. The, The slimy swindler that he was with the people from Tob, he begins to negotiate with the people of Ammon and say, hey, this is our land. How can we resolve this peacefully? But the Ammonites want nothing to do with him. And this is going to force them into war because they're not budging. And right at the end of uh, Jephthah's negotiation is where we're going to pick up. It's in chapter 11, verse 27, and we're going to go all the way to 40. And we're going to see Jephthah's heart here. We're going to see Jephthah make a decision that's quick, that doesn't honor the Lord. And things turn tragic, okay? Just prepare yourself here. Things turn ugly. So let's read that together. Verse 27 of chapter 11. This is Jephthah talking to the people of Ammon. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah and he sent, that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karamim, with the great blow. So the Ammonites were, sorry, subdued before the people of Israel. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the 
cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, That this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is, this is tragic. This is, this is messy. Not only is Israel spiraling out of control, but now their leaders are sacrificing their, their daughters. This leaves us with questions. And we need to unpack in order, okay? So let's take a deep breath here because the spiral is real. The spiral is worsening and we see that because not only is Israel giving themselves to the Baals and the Asheroth like we've heard a million times throughout these seven weeks that we've been in the book of Judges, right? But they are now giving themselves to all of the gods of the tribes that surround them and they're forgetting about God and and. Hence, Jephthah's vow, they're forgetting about God's character. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were giving themselves to these other gods, and they were, they were dominated by these other gods. They were completely and utterly dominated by their idolatry. And the thing is, remember Pastor Hunter preaching, they knew better. They've been taught better. They knew that they were going back to things that weren't going to satisfy, but they kept going back and they kept going back and they kept going back they didn't get it it's kind of you know over the past week my daughter has started to like repeat my wife and I all the time all right and uh she's real crazy active she just we turned around we were making dinner and she was in our windowsill what you need to climb up one couch and then on the top of the couch and then get up into the window. So, so she's becoming a little crazy, all right? And I'm learning quickly, okay? So here's the thing. She gets into every cabinet possible in our home, all right? So we have all of our kitchen cabinets locked up because I'm not going to fight that battle, all right? And the one thing is, in our bathroom, those cabinets aren't locked. So normally the door is shut, but when my wife and I are brushing our teeth or something, um, she'll go in there and she will open the cabinets and just anything that's in there, she feels is necessary. Let's put that on the ground and pull that out and bring that around the house, right? So she'll be like walking around with a thing of mouthwash, all right? And some of you like don't call anybody on me, okay? We make sure she doesn't drink any mouthwash. But, but here's the thing. We're beginning, we're beginning, she's starting to repeat after us. So, so we're, we're trying to say, hey, honey, shut that, okay? Shut that, shut that door, shut that door. So, so she now will get the, get the door and she'll open it. She'll pull some stuff out and be like, no, Kaya, no, no, shut that door. And so she'll say, shut. And she'll shut the door. But then she'll say, shut, and open the door. <laughs> and she doesn't quite pronounce shut, just w- like right just yet. So things are a little bit wacky, but we're working on that, all right? 
but she'll just be like, shut, 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 shut. She doesn't get it, right? She doesn't get the point. But she's 15 months old. Israel knows, right? Israel knows they've been told, they've experienced, and they keep going back for more. Every time Israel turned to an idol, the nation that they they worshiped that idol from, that, that nation would turn and oppress them. Turn and oppress them. And that idolatry would lead to enslavement. And in that enslavement, they would look to get out just by going more further into idolatry. And just like every other time, once they realize they're enslaved, they cry out. But this time, in this story, God says no. God says no. I've saved you a million times. I've saved you from all of these gods that you're going back to. Not today. And this brings up some questions because we know this character of God. We know how gracious and loving he is. But God's okay with answering our questions, right? We can't paint this nasty picture of God just because we don't understand him. Because here's the thing. One thing that God understands is Israel's heart and what their motivation is. God doesn't forgive this time because he sees Israel's heart very clearly when they ask for that forgiveness in verse 10. And uh, Michael Wilcock, a, a theologian, wrote this, and I thought it explained it well. He says, The Lord is saying, I know what this cry of yours is. It is merely a cry for help, which might as well be addressed to the Baals as to me. You see, if any of these other gods could have helped Israel, they would have went to them. They would have went to the Baals. They were running after all these other things in order to help them, and they, God wasn't their goal. Comfort was their goal. Safety was their goal. Their self, that was their goal. And they were just sorry because they were sitting in the consequences of disrespecting the God of the universe. It's like when I grew up, when when my mother would punish me and I'd say, Mom, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, please. And she just said, no, you're sorry now because you're in trouble. You're not sorry for what you did. And that's where Israel is right now. But we see a sort of shift here in verse 15. Let's look at that, all right? Look at verse 10 in chapter 10. It says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. And compare that to 15, and you see something different. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. God, whatever you think. We were the ones in the wrong. Do whatever you think here. But whatever you do, deliver us. Deliver us from our distress. Right? There's something different there. They genuinely repent. Their hearts felt conviction, and they hated what they were giving themselves to, and they removed themselves from. This is actually an impressive point of, of judges. They actually, this is one place where you see them remove themselves from their idolatry. And we learn a couple things from this story here. We learn two lessons. And one, we can clearly see the deep longing for a Savior in these people. We can see this all throughout the book of Judges. We can see this all throughout the Old Testament. But they are desiring more than a band-aid. They want more than just a judge to come save them for a few years. They're longing for more. They're longing for Christ. They're longing for that fulfillment. 
And the other lesson we could see is that God hates that which gets in the way of him. He hates sin. He hates the sin of Israel. He hates the idolatry of Israel. And he wants to pour his wrath out on it. Like, why wouldn't God hate that which disrupts the original intention of our relationship with God? Why wouldn't God hate that? We make him out to be evil, but he wants to keep us from the things that allow us to flourish in this life. That don't allow us to flourish from this life. I didn't say that correctly. And God wants to pour his wrath out on it. And we see the people of Israel given to their idolatry. Like God's judgment for idolatry is idolatry. Tasting ungodly things is punishment in itself. And he gives the people of Israel to their idolatry. In Romans 1, we see Romans 1, to 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So God's saying, hey, if you want to put money in between me and you, go ahead. Long after that, let it rule you. If you want, if you want popularity to run your life, go ahead. Be owned by that. Let it rule you. Let it control you. If you want another God to be in your life, go ahead and live life unfulfilled. Because all of these false gods, all of these idols, they are merciless. And you will see. You will see how merciful I am in the midst of that. These idols don't satisfy, and that's why God hates them, because he sees that they're longing for more. They're longing for him, and they don't see it. They don't see him. So as Israel, as we see this downward spiral, Israel's getting further and further from God. But the silver lining is that God still cares deeply. What we learned last week didn't stop here a few chapters later. Like, God still cares deeply for his people, and Chapter 10, verse 16, it's amazing. God says he's impatient over their misery. It's not the typical he forgives them. He's, he's impatient over seeing them so miserable. And his graciousness is poured out despite them, despite their unfaithfulness, because he still has a plan. He still has a plan for the people of Israel. He's still promised this land. Don't forget the beginning of the book. He is still promised to give them this land, so he's going to do whatever he can to make it happen, even if it's despite the people. Even if it's despite the people. So enter Jephthah. Enter Jephthah, this, this caveman of a man coming from the land of Tob, and uh, he's this promise of strength, and he comes and he tries to kind of swindle the Ammonites, negotiate with them a little bit to no avail. But at the same time, right before he goes into war, he tries to negotiate with God. He tries to swindle the Lord. He, he makes this rash vow to the Lord. We see it in chapter 11, verse 30. He says this, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, continuing in 31, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Just to start with, Jephthah's shaky here. 
We don't see the thing we saw last week in Gideon where he says, the Lord's given this to us. We see, Lord, if you, if, there's angst there, right? He's nervous. If you give this to us, then I'm going to give this to you. He's negotiating with God. He says, the first thing to come out of my house, when I get home the victor, then guess what? That thing I will give to you. I will kill and I will burn as a sacrifice to you. And there is some debate around what this means. Maybe he thinks Lassie's going to run out when he gets home, right? But that's not the case. The translation is clear that whoever comes out of my home, whoever comes out of my home, I will give them to you. Jephthah is relying on what he knows. He's relying on negotiation. He's not relying on God. He's doing what's right in his own eyes. Because here's the thing, Jephthah, you don't negotiate with God. He doesn't owe us anything. This is a one-way deal. We're not co-saviors. We contribute nothing. And he tries to contribute something, right? In order to get God to, hey, God, I'm going to do this, so you do this. And then he gets home as the victorious one. He's walking up to his house, and his only daughter comes out with tambourines and singing, Dad, you, you are victorious. And the coward that he is begins to blame her and tear her down. Because he knows in his mind what he did was not right. We know in the word of God, God didn't call Jephthah to kill his daughter. No way. It's, it's against his word. Deuteronomy 12, 31, throw that up. It is considered detestable. In God's word, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. The Bible prohibits this. And this not only has nothing to do with God, but it has nothing to do with their victory. Nothing in the word. This is just an addition. Like he's just adding to this story because of his stupidity, because he thinks he can kind of tweak God to, to make him do something and be something that he isn't. So where the heck did Jephthah get this? Where did Jephthah come up with this? I'm going I'm to kill my daughter and I'll burn her for you. He got it from Moab. He got it from the gods of Moab. These false gods of Moab were, were appeased. They were satisfied. They were paid off. If, if you killed your children, and then they would work on your behalf. Jephthah was reflecting his culture, was reflecting his beliefs, was, was taking what he knew to be true, his experiences, and reflecting it on God and who he truly was and is. If anything, this victory of Jephthah's is partial at best. God's victorious and Israel moves on, but Jephthah has lost. He has lost because Jephthah tried to make God look exactly like him. And, and here's the thing, church, when God looks exactly like us, it isn't him. It just isn't him. The root we're seeing here, the root of why Israel is failing, the root of why they're going further and further down this spiral is because they are diverting themselves from the truth. They're floundering because they've abandoned the truth. They're forgetting about their God. They're adding to their God. They're subtracting from their God like he's some type of Lego tower. 
doing whatever they want to try to piece him together to, to be who they want him to be. And in the midst of it all, they forget his character. They forget his character because the image of God was in Jephthah's daughter and he ruined her. Barry Webb says this, there is a great difference between the kind of religion that arises from our own insecurity and desire to get God to meet our needs and that which is based on God's own revelation of himself. God does not call for human sacrifice, Jephthah. God calls for self-sacrifice, Jephthah. In church, yeah, I don't want us to go and kill anybody here today, right? And if any of you are, are, are attempting to sacrifice anything after this, please talk with one of our pastors or staff before you leave. But here is the thing. So often, church, rather than reflecting God, we want him to reflect us. And this is where we miss it. When we add to God, when, when we take away from God, we miss the truth of who God is. Because God needs nothing. God needs no additions. God doesn't need your little spin, your two-second understanding in this three-hour movie. God doesn't need that. And we see this syncretism with, with Jephthah where he takes his, his culture and his God, and he brings them together. Church, are we doing that? Just because we're being used by God doesn't mean that our hearts are, are okay with him. When we don't remind ourselves of who God is, just like Israel, they didn't remind themselves of who God is, and that's what started the cycle every single time. We begin to create him in our own image, and we see so much of that today. We see so much of that right here. We create God to be who we want him to be. And let me just tell you, my friends, and I say this respectfully because I am a student of the Word. I want to learn. I want to be corrected, okay? But here's the thing. If you just spout off things about Jesus and you have no clue where they came from, you should stop. Because we need to derive our truth from the Word of God. And from the assembly of his believers, people who can affirm that that is true and that is real. Because here's the thing. Our personal misunderstandings of God and who he is and how he relates to us lead to corporate misunderstandings. We see these false gospels all over the place. The one that Jephthah bought into, we see them today. We see them in places like works-based religion. When, when people think that they need to give something in order for God to save them. They think that they need to do these things in order for God's salvation to be on their life. We see these things in the prosperity gospel when, when people are adding to the gospel saying, if you just have enough faith, and, then God will give this to you. That's a Jephthah experience right there. That's negotiating with God. Jesus is all we need. We don't need more. We don't need more because, you know, in that thing, the prosperity gospel, what isn't true for the widow of faith in a poor country who has more faith than I do, isn't true for the person in the high riser in Manhattan. We don't just have enough faith and then earn, earn, earn. We also see this with those who reject the supernatural when the Spirit of God is very alive. We see this with theological 
not political. Everyone say it with me. Not political. Theological liberalism. Where we base our faith off of our experiences rather than on the solid truth of God's word. And we see this in huge cults and counterfeit gospels like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Twisting this truth, twisting God's truth is dangerous. It threatens life. And Jephthah did just that. Sometimes we fit our truth in the mold of the world, into the mold of us. And our old self creeps in when God calls us to something new. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in, the true, in true righteousness and holiness. So as I begin to wrap this thing up, church, what mold are you trying to fit your faith into? What mold are you trying to fit your faith into that it just doesn't belong? I'm not talking about second-tier things. There are things we could disagree on, folks. There are things that just within this church and within the pastoral team, like, we disagree on things. But I'm talking about the essentials. We can't disagree on the essentials. And you know what? Despite our departure from faith in this culture, despite our mess, God shows us grace and he's at work. He gives us his word that we could search. He gives us his word. Hey, hey guess what? If you ever want to know, hey, what, what is, who is God? What is he all about? Like his word is himself written down in ink. We can see who God is through, through his word. Regular, humble Bible reading is important lest we go the way of Israel during the judges, lest we just enter this cycle over and over and over again and make the mistakes of Jephthah. But even though, even though Jephthah had issues and Israel had issues, God, God moves, he defeats the Ammonites. It's messy, but God's at work. It's a partial victory at best because Israel's victorious. Jephthah isn't. And the saddest part of Israel's story here, the saddest part here, is that Israel is missing being part of God's grand plan. They're missing the the joy, the satisfaction, the power. And God needs to work to spike them. They're not entering into it. And church, just we can mirror this today. Just like Israel, today is messy. Church, we, we have these cycles, right? And truth is scattered. But in the midst of that mess, God is at work. In the midst of your mess, church, we can rest in this. God is at work. But let's not have God work despite us. Let's have God work in and through us because it's good and right to rest in the fact that God has finished the work because God has been working perfectly in the imperfect since Genesis 3. We can rest in that. That he's finished the work. But here's the thing. He's given us the grace to enter in and play. He's taken us off the sidelines and say, hey, come on in. You can be part of this, Jephthah Church. You can be part of this. I've called you to holiness. I've called you to this sanctifying, sanctified life that is so beautiful with, with Christ in you who is your hope, right? I've called you to guard the truth and to not fear, to not fret. And I've called you into play the game of 
cosmic restoration. We don't need to be on the sideline here. And although God will work despite us, my friends, let us see that he has called us to play the game. This overarching ache of Israel and Judges, man, they need help, right? They need a Savior. They're longing for fulfillment. They're longing for that fulfillment that we have today in Jesus. We have more than they do in Jesus' finished work today. So let's not be okay with the cycle. Let's not be okay with the lies. Let us enter in.